This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, flattening the curve has meant sudden and big changes to how we live. So how are Canadians coping with these new realities? Big things, for example, like going to sporting events, uh, going out to restaurants, uh, going to concerts, going to movies. I mean, all of that has dropped down to just about nothing. Telehealth was something that we already saw growing over the past few years. But with people trying to exercise more physical distancing, there has been a massive spike. Anything other than a critical appointment has been, it has been suggested to, uh, to see a doctor online through telehealth. Lots of local farmers markets opened for the first time this year over the weekend, but they're not running at full steam. We're in a unique, unique position. We're small enough to adapt, and we've had to basically go online. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. I think it's fair to say all of our lives have changed in the last couple of months, but maybe we don't realize how much. We haven't taken a moment to kind of take a look back at what we are no longer doing. Well, for more on that is Ipsos CEO Daryl Berker, because Ipsos has been tracking all of those changes. Uh, good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Cindy. So, okay, now we know that we've made a lot of changes, but you've been asking people about what people have changed in their day-to-day lives. Just about everything. I mean... Everybody's pretty much locked up, uh, not uh, not doing anything like they were they were doing them previously. Um, uh, big things, for example, like going to sporting events, uh, going out to restaurants, uh, going to concerts, going to movies. I mean, all of that has dropped down to just about nothing. Um, uh, any uh, types of uh, social gatherings that we used to go to, we're really not doing that anymore. Uh, and uh, uh, also, uh, the degree to which we're engaging in things like e-commerce way beyond what we used to. So a lot of things that people had only heard about before, they're now being forced to try. Uh, it'll be interesting to see after all of this whether or not uh, they'll actually continue doing it. But so far, it's been a real boom for anybody who's involved in uh, delivery or anything that involves any type of electronic commerce. Right, as long as you're not a restaurant worker or anything having to do with food service. Yeah, and, and that's the, the real uh, aspect of this that's uh, that's crushing for Canadians. I mean, while they're certainly concerned about the health aspects of this, it's it's interesting to see not very many people actually know anybody who's been infected with uh, with COVID. Um, uh, they certainly don't know generally anybody who's died, mm. uh, but they certainly know somebody uh, who, who has lost a job or has been laid off. Right. And invariably, usually what they're doing is talking about themselves. Now, so it's 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 a health care issue, but it's a, it's a it's a, an economic economic disease. Right. You've done a lot of research for this. You've got a new book about this, right? That shows what a different and changing nation Canada is. Yeah, it really is. I mean, we have these impressions of who we are that just aren't true anymore. So, you know, the idea that we're the great white North, well, you know, everybody lives pretty much lives in a city these days. Uh, the idea that, you know, we're the, uh, the English, French, and the Aboriginal community, no, the fastest growing groups in, our, in Canada are basically new Canadians. We have the largest amount of immigration per capita of any country in the, in the world. So in being, instead of being the old country we were, we're rapidly becoming a Western, and by that I mean Pacific-oriented country that's becoming a lot browner, uh, becoming a lot more diverse, and also becoming a lot older in terms of the population. So does all that matter in light of what's happening with COVID-19? Well, I think it certainly does. I think that uh, the idea, you can see the diversity of what's happening, for example, in rural areas and what's happening in urban areas. If Canada was the Canada that it was 
50 years ago, uh, the impact may not have been as big because more of us lived in, in places where we wouldn't be in as much contact with people. Um, uh, Pacific immigration, people coming over from places like China to Canada, that really didn't happen 50 years ago. Uh, the Chinese population in Canada was actually quite small. Um, now it's become quite large, and that, that transportation back and forth across Pacific borders is one of the things that made this, this possible, So uh, as it is in, in many countries. So it's a very different country. Uh, if this would have happened 50 or 60 years ago, the impact would have been very different. Interesting. All right. So you're, you're continuing to track all this. Has it been just a fascinating time for you to do the work that you do, Daryl? Oh, incredibly fascinating. I just actually got off a conference call with the World Economic Forum with uh, all the people who are experts on uh, uh, um, health in Africa, because we just finished a 20-country survey in Africa talking about how people are dealing with uh, dealing with this issue. So it's a global disease that happened instantly, and it's happening in my life instantly as I'm learning all of this about what's happening all over the world. So interesting. Daryl, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Simi. That's Daryl Bricker, the Ipsos Public Affairs CEO, talking about the way in which Canada has changed, and not just during COVID-19, the things that we are no longer doing uh, because of that in our day-to-day lives. 71% of us say we're avoiding restaurants and coffee shops, not that many of them are open, but 59% avoiding public transit. 38% have cancelled plans to stay at a resort or hotel somewhere. 21% of people say they're shopping for groceries online, and a whopping 39% say they are just spending less money in general. I actually think that number should be higher. I like. I think way more people are spending less money in general. Found a way in, Simi at cknw.com. Up next, we're going to talk about the idea of Vancouver being an NHL hub city. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it gives you an idea of where we are at in this pandemic, that we're starting to talk about ways in which sports might be able to return this summer. Even hockey, for that matter. I know a lot of people are probably moving on and thinking it's just about baseball season. Uh, but no, there are still some chances that hockey could be played, NHL hockey, this summer. Uh, the plan that they're looking at right now is having the games potentially played in just a few select cities. So one city per division. Now, if you think that health officials would never say okay to this, well, you may be surprised by what Dr. Bonnie Henry said in her press conference yesterday. There are ways that we can do it safely. So I think it's an interesting idea. And I think there are ways that we could look at having games being played, perhaps in, in BC. Hockey would be one that we could certainly look at. There would be parameters that we've talked about. So I would not see there being um, in ice audience, for example, but we could broadcast the games. And there's ways that uh, players can take precautions to ensure that there's physical distancing. And, you know, when we think of hockey, which I love, um, people are wearing face masks. So there's ways that uh, players are protected when they're on the ice. Interesting, right? So this is clearly something that is being thought about. Now, our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance chance to speak with a global news reporter, Jay Janauer. He says that he had the ability and chance to speak to an NHL executive to explain to him what one of these hub cities would look like. How would you describe what an NHL hub city is? NHL hub cities uh, would, would basically be eight teams would come to one designated city where they would set up Basically, for the rest of the regular season, they would begin a training camp that would last three weeks, 21 days, and then they would finish off the regular season over the next three-week period, which would be another 21 days. We'd be looking at two upwards of three games a day in the same facility. 
Well, how would they go about picking where these hub cities would be? Because I know initially there was conversation about them being in sort of smaller or more remote cities. The NHL is still trying to figure that out, who they'll select. But when you look at Canada and when you look at our COVID rates compared to our neighbors south of the border, BC has done a fantastic job led by Dr. Bonnie Henry. Edmonton is in very good shape as far as Alberta goes. Uh, Canada also has a 72-cent dollar. So if you're the NHL, which seems intent on finishing off the regular season and having the playoffs, you'd want to go to an area where you probably have a, a less chance of, of infection, uh, as well as areas that have NHL-ready buildings, and we have that here in B.C. But B.C. fans who are thirsty for hockey shouldn't get too excited, right? Because it sounds like there's not going to be anybody who's actually allowed in the stadium or in the arena to watch these games. These these games in these hub cities will be totally locked down. No fans. The only people that would be in the building would be rink employees as well as team officials and players. They could be locked down potentially up to 56 straight days. That means no family, no interaction with other teams, no interaction with friends. It would strictly be hockey, hockey, hockey. Wow, that's really intensive. That's hockey boot camp. Well, be a hockey boot camp, but we also have to remember, and we're living in—we all know—we're living in, in in different times. But the NHL has one billion dollars at stake here in terms of TV revenue, and giving up a one billion dollar paycheck or have, have to, having to hand that back is something the NHL doesn't want to do. You also have to look at the NHL players and the NHL PA. There's six hundred and fifty million dollars in escrow right now. If the league were to not play, not have a playoffs. All that money would go to the owners. Now, yes, we're talking about money. Yes, we're talking about financial greed, perhaps. But that's pro sports. Um, and we also have to look at perhaps jump-starting our economy. And when you look at eventually getting back to some sort of normal, we always look for sports to be that outlet. And if it could be done safely, and we're talking about medical testing daily, um, this is something that I think you need to look at. What about the players? Have you talked to any players yet? Are they itching to get back out there on the ice again? Uh, we've been communicating with players on and off for the last little while. Uh, you know, everyone is enjoying their family time. I don't think anybody would want to be locked down for an additional, you know, two to three months. But when you look at what you might have to be giving up, and I mentioned the escrow, and that's a big thing. People don't realize how much money the players give up from, from their paychecks. If you have no league revenue, i.e. their TV deal, uh, you're looking at a lower salary cap. You're also looking at giving up way more money on your paychecks. They may not like it, but it's something that they may just have to do. Now, I know that Dr. Bonnie Henry gave this concept the thumbs up, but there's still people out there who are going to be skeptical. What do you say to people who, from a health concern perspective, are, are skeptical? They're not sure about this idea. Well, I think we have to, uh, Nikki, I think we have to be honest with ourselves. I know we're living in a pandemic, but let's also look at the numbers. Let's look at the number of people that we currently have in the ICU. Let's look at the number of people who we have in hospital. And it's terrible that we've lost lives. It's terrible that there are people infected. But for the most part, we have a healthy society. And if we continue to follow Dr. Henry's orders in terms of uh, washing our hands, uh, limiting our, our contact. If there's a way of making this happen, I think you have to look at that. People also like to point out double standards. Well, how come pro athletes can do this if I can't do this? Let's, let's look at our economy right now. Um, let's look at the people who are without jobs 
right now. Let's look at let's look at positive signs, and I think that's something that sports can provide with us, but it has to be done properly. And I know for a fact that the NHL and the teams that are hoping to become hub cities are only going to do this if it can be done safely. The last thing you want is to have eight teams in your city and say three players get sick on one team because that not only ends your regular season, it ends your playoffs, and it also brings into question whether or not you have a season come 2020-21. That is Jay Jenauer from Global speaking with our Nikki Reitmeyer. Uh, interesting to note that as of this morning, it looks like the Edmonton Oilers have submitted a bid to the NHL to be one of these hub cities as have the Vancouver Canucks. Now, it would be one city per division, and both Edmonton and Vancouver are in the Pacific Division, so there's little competition here for this. But uh, they, it turns out the NHL has received quite a few uh, bids on this from different cities in North America, so we'll see if they decide to move forward. So how, how do you feel about that, though? I mean, you wouldn't get to go to a game, so that's not the point of it, but the point is that it would be a way of, once again, being able to watch some hockey on TV. Are you all for that? Or do you think, nah, just call it a season? This is Mornings with Simi. This whole pandemic situation has really changed the way we interact with everybody and everything, but especially in the area of our health. We were working our way towards a more electronic health system, but this has really catapulted things forward. For instance, it's very common now to use something called telehealth. Uh, That is that you use the phone or you use video conferencing to get your doctor's appointment and all of that. But there are a lot of tech companies out there who are helping with this. Now, Hamad Shabazi is our next guest. He is the founder and CEO of Well Health. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's great to be with you. Now, what is it that your company is doing? I understand you're helping people actually just have their appointments. Exactly. You know, uh, we live in a very uh, interesting and, and, and awkward time uh, due to uh, physical distancing requirements. And, and uh, that doesn't stop the need to go see a doctor. But of course, as you know, uh, critical po- anything other than a critical appointment has been, it has been suggested to, uh, to see a doctor online through telehealth. Uh, we operate one such platform, which has been seeing tremendous growth uh, and interest uh, in the last few weeks. Um, we operate a, a website called virtualclinics.ca, uh, and you don't need an app. You just uh, essentially browse onto the website, and, and uh, you quickly register, and you can actually browse your practitioner and see the doctor pretty much right away, uh, all, all, all throughout the day or night. Right. Like I think in regular times, people might be a little reluctant to do this, but what has the take-up been like since this whole thing started? It's been quite dramatic. And of course, you know, we own and operate medical clinics as well. We, we, uh, we operate about 21 of them in, in the city and it, here in Vancouver. And of course, we saw a little bit of traffic uh, declines in the actual clinics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, uh, we were fortunate enough to, see, to have a, a telehealth platform. So we enabled all of our physicians. And of course, those physicians are still eager to provide that care. And so, um, you know, we, we, we created some awareness around uh, around the service. And we did see incredible take up. I mean, we, last week, uh, we were through a thousand visits in one day. Wow. Okay. So like, what is it that patients can do on this site? They can talk to their doctor, obviously, but what else? Um, yeah. I mean, essentially there's about uh, two thirds of all types of visits can be done on the platform. Um, you know, so a lot of, uh, we see a lot of prescription renewals. Uh, we need, we see mental health check-ins. We see a lot of check-ins on chronic disease 
situations, uh, well, COPD, you know, diabetes, heart disease. Um, a lot of people are also, you know, quite concerned about uh, their pre-existing conditions or, uh, you know, any kind of immune system deficiencies they have at this time because we know that COVID does, you know, sort of sort of punish uh uh, people with those types of conditions. So it's, it's a great opportunity to be able to check in with a physician, but not have to expose yourself. And so we've been seeing a lot of that. Do you think this is here to stay or when this is over, will people go back to actually seeing doctors in person? You know, I think it's unquestionably here to stay. Um, I do also believe that, you know, you will see traffic pick back up at the clinics. We've actually seen an improvement in traffic in, in, in the last three weeks uh, in a row. Each each week, we've seen more traffic come back. Uh, but but I do think that um, you know there's a, there's there's a bit of a silver lining here. You know, in, in the past, it was it was not uncommon if you wanted a prescription renewal that you would come in and, and wait an hour yeah. <laughs> to see the doctor for a few minutes. And and you know, sure, I mean, we have affordable healthcare that we're very proud of here in Canada, but sometimes it's not accessible just based on the amount of time you have to wait. And so I think that's a bit of a win. Uh, and, and people, both doctors and patients are, are really loving the fact that, you know, you can have quick, efficient visits in this, in this, in this format and medium. Do you think there's a time saving by doing this? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're hearing it from, uh, again, both, both doctors and patients. And, and one of the interesting things that we didn't, we hadn't really, um, you know, considered or, or forecasted is, mm-hmm. is a lot more on time behavior. <laughs> so, oh. um, you, you know, you know, when you get a, 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 you know, an appointment with a doctor and you still end up waiting 30, 45 yeah. minutes, you know, um, it, you know, it, 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 it's, it's seeming that doctors are able to uh, manage their time better. They're, they're able to exit a room a little bit more easily, uh, a virtual room a little bit more easily. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, I, and I think it makes sense. You know, when you waited an hour to see a doctor, um, you, you, you start to kind of add other things that you want to speak to the doctor about. You want to get a return on your time. And so uh, if, you did, if you didn't wait an hour and you just sort of checked in and you showed up and the doctor didn't keep you waiting too, much long, too long, yeah. you have an efficient visit and you can be in and out quickly. Inter- so, you know, it helps a lot. Interesting. Hamid, thanks so much for being with us. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. That's Hamid Shabazi, founder and CEO of WellHealth. They're just one of the platforms that people have been using and doctors have been using to have more virtual health appointments with people. And I'm curious, do you think that's something that's going to stay? Like when this is all said and done, do you prefer to go into the doctor's office or are you okay with, you know, video conferencing or a phone call from your doctor instead? Email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It's devastating for our industry. We've seen massive layoffs across the board all over the province. That is Walt Judas. He's the CEO of the Tourism Business Association of BC. We know how devastating this pandemic has been to tourism, not just here in BC, but all over the world. But here in BC, as we've been hearing about in the news and from the press conferences, things are starting to look a little different here. We have flattened the curve. This is the end of our beginning, as Dr. Bonnie Henry puts it. So what does that next phase look like? As we ramp up or very slowly, the social interactions, the things we're allowed to do, is there a role in there 
for tourism somewhere. Well, we know that businesses in Tofino are looking at this very carefully. I mean, this has been a difficult year. Remember, at one point, they had to ask people, stop coming here. We, we can't look after you. We'll get overwhelmed if too many people catch COVID-19. Now you've got May long weekend on the horizon. So what is going to be happening in Tofino? Joining me now is Josie Osborne, the mayor of Tofino, to talk more about this. Mayor Osborne, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. For the most part, would you say that people have listened to the plea that you made a month or so ago? Yes, they really have. I think people understand what we're trying to say when we want to protect the healthcare system that we have here and not be overwhelmed and that we just haven't been able to host visitors as hard as it is. It, we just haven't been able to do it for the last six or seven weeks. Right. must be pretty quiet in Tofino, though. It is very quiet. It's, um, you know, you're hearing a lot from people saying, wow, it's like when I first moved here 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It feels, it feels like, uh, yeah, it feels like we've moved back a couple of decades. Is there also a desire, though, to start thinking about what the next phase looks like? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I think we've been thinking about that for some weeks. And for some people, I'm sure they began thinking about it right away. So, of course, the immediate response to the pandemic was something we had to focus on. But quite quickly, uh, businesses and local residents' minds have turned to, well, how will we safely reopen? And what cues do we need to take from the provincial government? And how are we going to work with businesses and the medical community to do this in, a, in a, the safest way possible? All right. So is there a plan that has been developed? Like, what about May long weekend? It's coming up. Yeah, May long weekend is coming up. I think we have a a few hints already about May, though, and knowing that, for example, Pacific Rim National Park Reserve is still closed, Mm -hmm. and and they've announced very firmly that they will be closed until the end of May. Uh, We also heard Dr. Bonnie Henry say yesterday when talking about the key principles for the new normal, the eighth principle that she listed was reducing personal non-essential travel. So I I think that's a pretty heavy indicator for... uh, what the expectation is for tourism, for leisure travel for the next few weeks, at least. And I think that pretty much takes May off the books. Um, But as far as making a plan, absolutely, yes. And this is a a really uh, important part of recovery. So there's a few different elements to the plan that are really important. And first of all, the businesses themselves are already at work um, developing new ways of doing business in their establishments or in their stores. And uh, we are also working with the hospital to, uh, we've struck an economic recovery task force that actually meets for the first time this week. And it will really be providing guidance and liaising with the community to help develop that recovery plan. Right. So if you think that the May long weekend then is still off the table, will you be reiterating your message then from the last month? Because I have a feeling a lot of people are going to be ready to be out and about by May long weekend. (laughs) Well, I I think a lot of people will feel they're ready to get out and about. And the question is, how far are you planning to travel? And I think what we're going to we're going to learn more when we listen to the premier speak on Wednesday. Uh, They're obviously going to begin encouraging a little bit more interaction. But we are three hours from the largest town of Nanaimo and, and and the central part of Vancouver Island. So that's um, that's still quite distant and too distant, I think, for uh, the comfort level of many people who might be willing to go out to a local park or maybe just up the road. But I'm not sure that kind of trek out here is what people have in mind. And on the other end, you need to have a reservation and a place to stay here. And I think our accommodation businesses have been absolutely uh, spectacular in their support of, of human health and lives and understanding that we have to do this in a very safe and methodical way. 
so um, you know reservations are way 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 down um, we don't have uh, the stats yet for April but we know that March for example even with just the last couple of weeks impacted we fell from 64 percent occupancy last year in 2019 to just 43% this year. And uh, I'm sure that April would be much, much, much lower than that. Right. So then are the hotels and lodges and places to stay, are they developing some social distancing guidelines? And what might those look like? Yeah, they are. I I can't give you any details of exactly what they look like, but they're certainly working with uh, sector organizations at a provincial level to develop safe procedures. And and that's something that people want to see. So locals here, they're interested in seeing what those processes are, those procedures are. And of course, visitors, once we are able to welcome them again, they'll want to know what they are as well. And I I think that's uh, the same for the tourism industry across British Columbia. Yeah. Have you talked to other mayors about this, other mayors of kind of touristy areas? Oh, uh, constantly. I would say (laughs) every single day I have a conversation with at least one mayor of another resort municipality or a a small municipality. For example, just yesterday I was speaking with Merlin Blackwell, who is the mayor of Clearwater, right next to Wellsbury Provincial Park. I speak to the mayors of Fernie, Whistler, uh, Kimberly, places like that. And I would say we're all pretty much in the same place right now. So we're we're coming out of that initial response phase and we're really focused on working with the business community, striking economic recovery task forces or something like that and, and getting to work on our on our plans. What is your feeling though about the summer? Like we know the next six weeks will be a time of slowly inching forward, but do you think there will be a bit of a tourist summer in Tofino? Well, I think a lot of folks here are, are very concerned about that and really want to see at least something. And I have to say that is so critical to the survival of so many businesses here, that some kind of summer could be really the make it or break it thing for them to be able to make it through another winter before things pick up again next spring and summer. So it is obviously going to take some time to readjust and be able to invite people. It's going to take some time before we would be able to go back to 100% capacity and be able to see the kind of summers that we've had in the past. But uh, I think we're all very much hoping and, um, and, and optimistic that there's a way forward where we can safely conduct some level of uh, visitation this year. You know, this is what we do, and we're so proud of what we do, and we'd love to share this place and the people of our community with the visitors that we get and the kinds of incredible and meaningful experiences that people have here. It's a real joy to watch somebody um, see a whale for the first time in their lives or uh, eat an incredible meal that's made of local foods, and and not being able to do that is is a real heartbreaker. Well, we'll see what happens. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. Thanks for your time. I hope so. Thank you. That is the Tofino Mayor, Josie Osborne, talking about the little baby steps that communities like Tofino are taking, these resort municipalities that are looking ahead to hopefully being able to get some tourists in at some point this summer. But it doesn't sound like that's going to be in time for the May long weekend, if that's what you were hoping. This is Mornings with Simi. Okay, let's talk about personal protective equipment. We know how important it is for frontline healthcare workers to be able to access that. But the BC Nurses Union is reporting that they have received quite a few complaints related to whether or not nurses have access to that PPE. How many complaints? More than 1,700 of them. To talk more about that now, we're joined by Christine Sorensen, who is the president of the BC Nurses Union. Christine, thank you for being here. Oh, good morning, Simi. So what do these complaints kind of range from? Is it just clearly just lack of access? Oh, not just lack of access. No, we have nurses across the province who are complaining about the depleted supply of personal protective equipment 
And that ranges from everything from gowns, gloves, face shields, and N95 respirator masks. And so was that, as you said, all over the province, though? Was it concentrated in some areas? No, across the province. It, do, it doesn't matter whether it's a large acute care hospital uh, to a small rural or remote site in long-term care and even in community. Can you describe then from the complaints that you heard, what is the problem? Are they having to use the same equipment over and over again? And how bad is the situation? Uh, well, depending on the area, depending on the, on the, the piece of protection protective equipment, it really does range. We do have nurses that uh, have access problems to masks, so they have to go and and locate them in a centralized area. Uh, They're often behind lock and key. Uh, They may have to ask a manager for an N95 mask. Those things delay patient care. Uh, We have new gowns that are entering uh, use that appear to uh, rip and tear uh, at at every sort of wearing. Uh, Some of them come without a sleeve, and so that's been a problem. Uh, And then we've been using masks that... um, uh, one day you use them and the next day they're recalled by the health authority saying that there's a problem with them, but we're never told what the problem is. Uh, and so those are all concerns across the province that we've been hearing. And have you expressed those concerns to the Ministry of Health? Well, we have talked to every health authority in the province. Uh, we have asked why we're being provided masks that are then recalled. We're asking why masks are locked up and why nurses do not have unfettered access to the personal protective equipment that they need to provide patient care. And would you notice, has this gotten worse in the last couple of weeks? Or, Christine, has this been a steady problem since the uh, state of emergency was declared? Uh, well, It is a problem that began early on, even in the state of emergency. Uh, We had restrictions placed very early on, access to uh, masks. Uh, And while we were told we were in a state of needing to conserve, uh, we we wonder what was really going on prior to the state of the pandemic um, being being declared. Uh, We expect the employer to be able to provide nurses with the equipment they need, and they seem to not have had the equipment we needed even very early on in the pandemic. Uh, is the equipment scarce or is it? are there shifts that are happening, I guess, with nurses where they don't have PPE? Uh, well, there are shifts where nurses have very scarce PPE, where they are asked to share personal protective equipment between each other, uh, particularly goggles and face shields. Uh, but we have situations where nurses are asked to reuse the same mask through their entire shift, which means they have to take it off put it on a piece of paper towel with their name on it, go and take the break, come back and put it back on, or they're reusing it between patients, which is something we have never done before. Yeah, what was it like before? How often would in a day would you say a nurse would have access to a mask? Well, depending on the patient that they're providing care for, they certainly would always have access to the equipment right at the point of care, and it would be the nurse's decision on what level of personal protective equipment And depending, if you were in an ICU with a patient with an infectious disease like COVID, you may be going in and out of that patient's room, you know, twice an an hour. Uh, So you could be using up to 20 sets of personal protective equipment. And that was normal. And so what are you hearing from the health authorities on this? Well, that's, that's the question that we have. Why are the health authorities not being transparent with us? Why are they not telling us exactly what is the status of the personal protective equipment? And what exactly are they doing to 
ensure that nurses are safe when they go to work. We've not heard anything. Uh, and it is very concerning for us as we go to a state of reopening the province that will we have enough personal protective equipment uh, for the patients that will come in with COVID as we move through the state of reopening. So you're concerned about potentially the numbers going back up? Absolutely. Very concerned. Nurses every day uh, send me emails uh, concerned about people gathering or people, uh, you know, not using face masks or not not social distancing. Uh, we have hospitals are starting to increase capacity. Some of them are moving back to capacity. Some some units are over capacity and the nurses don't have the personal protective equipment to safely care for the patients or protect themselves. Christine, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. That is Christine Sorensen, the president of the BC Nurses Union, saying that still, and we've heard about this all along, that still they don't feel there is an adequate amount of personal protective equipment for nurses who are on the front lines. And as you heard her describe, they are having to do things they haven't done before, and that is, you know, wear a mask for their entire shift uh, or, you know, have defective gowns, whatever the case may be. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It's really important that we keep these thousands of farmers who produce food at a community local level able to grow and local residents to be able to access that food, particularly in this, in this point in time. That was Heather O'Hara. She's the executive director of the BC Association of Farmers Markets. Now, we know a lot of local farmers markets actually opened for the first time this year, just over this past weekend, but they are not anywhere close to running at full steam, of course, because not everything is out there growing yet, so they don't have the full availability of all the different products that they will have, say, a couple of months from now. Now, the markets are considered an essential service. But right now, they're only allowed to sell food. A lot of work has gone into making this happen, though. So they've done a whole bunch of social distancing measures like contactless payment, and they're reducing capacity. And a lot of the products are available online, actually. If you want to shop at your farmer's market, you can order online and just pick up on the weekend when your market is open. So we were thinking about that when we heard about this and thought, well, that's a lot of work, particularly for the producers and the vendors to make sure that they can convert all of that over to the work that they do online. So we wanted to talk more about that. Joining us now is Dean Thompson, who's the operator of The Local Farm with his wife, Yvonne. Dean, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell me, what kind of products do you guys have at the farmer's markets? So we specialize in uh, greenhouse living lettuce and living herbs and uh, living microbes. Our whole thing is is living, basically. We do it year-round. Oh, you do it year-round then. So are you able to put some product available in markets right now? Yeah, we're fairly popular right now because it is that month of May where there isn't a lot of local stuff yet. So how have you made this transition then with this new reality that we all find ourselves in? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit strange. Yeah, it's been extra challenging. We've had to, uh, we lost a lot of business there in a matter of a day to restaurants and so on. So, But we're in a unique, unique position. We're small enough to adapt. And we've had to basically go online. So we partnered with Oyster and King. They do mushrooms. Right. And since then, we've got a, I think about 10 vendors on that portal and it's really taken off, but it has all its extra challenges uh, that go with distributing through a model like that. So that's been difficult. Yeah. In what ways then? What have been those challenges? Well, we're really set up for, you know, farmers markets are ideal for local farms. It is the most efficient way to get it out there. 
less costly and so on. With the online orders, you got to deal with keeping inventory up online. You got to uh, deal with the logistics of it, delivering to homes for pickup. And that just creates it's more labor, yeah. more cost. And it's really, it's only been efficient for us because we partnered with Oyster and King because they're able to scale up. Right. I guess because used to be the farmer's markets were really great for the small producer and the small vendor. Will this model then make it more challenging to be smaller? Well, I hope not because I really, I, I hope that the future we go back to smaller community farming because, uh, you know, food security is an issue in my mind. It's one of the reasons we got into it. Um, it will create more challenges. I'm hoping the farmer's market keep coming back the way they are. People are supporting it. And really, I think the key is getting more people to support local foods, particularly through local farmer markets and, and the local grocery store, which we're at one in Ladner here we do okay with, too. Yeah, I know that's a busy one, too. Um, so, Dean, what has business been like then? Like, are people adapting to this new way of doing this? Yeah, well, we're trying. Everybody, the problem is, Every vendor is trying to do their own pickups and deliveries, and it's really not a model that's going to work. You can't, I mean, there's very slim margins in this as it is. Long hours, not a lot of pay, but uh, so must- delivering the homes individually doesn't work. So now you've got uh, the farmer's market coming out with online portals to support that. So I think this will all get weeded out, and I think hopefully it works for the small vendor as well. You must really okay. love what you do then, Dean, if you're, if you're <laughs> jumping through all these no, hoops to do this. I'm just crazy maybe, but yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> it's just, it's challenging. It's certainly not, uh, I'm new to it still. So I can tell you from doing different things, it's a, it's a very challenging field. I can bet. Yeah. But the, the demand is also so great right now, isn't it, Dean, for more locally based product. People want to support vendors like you. For sure, and uh, we can't keep up, and we're trying to expand, and it has its challenges as well. Um, for, I can't get greenhouse people to build a greenhouse for because they're, they're too busy with the whole marijuana gold rush and so on. But uh, we're trying to expand to meet it, and I, I, if we get more support, maybe we get more people into the, the farming because it is a challenge. So when you and, say uh, when you say more support, then do you want more people to buy the products? Do you want more people to be interested in what you're doing? It's not just what we're doing. I, I think it's the whole local food. Like we can't take food security for granted. So the more they support the local farmers market, the better. The more they support local businesses, like restaurants, that support local markets and uh, local uh, food vendors and farmers like myself, uh, the better. Okay, so right now you said you've got a lot of living lettuces, is that right? Yeah, so we we harvest weekly, so we have living lettuce every week, but we're just a small producer, which it's, it's a nice, unique position to be in because we can adapt quickly, but, you know, as a small producer, it's challenging as well. Do you do so, farm sales, Dean? Like, can people drive out on a Sunday afternoon to Ladner and buy some living lettuce? We offered it uh, right away, particularly those who are compromised with the COVID-19 uh, they didn't want to go near the markets and so on, so we offered that. But then we picked up with the uh, Oyster and King and the deliveries and pickups that the market have taken over that. So we offer it still for certain customers who still like coming out here and picking up on Sunday. 
I guess people are really paying attention right now, aren't they, about, uh, to how they can support farmers and producers like you. So I guess that is a good thing to come out of all this. Yeah, it's a great thing. We, got it. we really do have a lot of support out there. I'm not saying it's not there. There's a lot of people that put up with the lineup at the market, the farmer's markets, because of the six-foot distance and so on. And they, they keep coming, so that we really appreciate that, and I think it's a good thing. We just we need to see more. There's plenty of farmer's markets, but a lot of the secondary ones for a small farmer like us, it's very challenging to make enough to, to go to all of Right. So, so you're saying if you could get a little help with that, you would be able to do more? We'd be able to do more. Um, and if more people would support those other local ones, then um, I think you'd see even more farmers coming to them and it will uh, just grow from there. All right. Well, you know what? I'm certainly committed to doing this. I'm going to check it all out online. I will look for the local farm. So, Dean, thank you. Thank you. That is Dean Thompson. He's the operator of The Local Farm with his wife, Yvonne. You can find them at Farmer's Markets. Uh, you can check out the website, the BC Farmer's Market Trail. They'll let you, like, direct you to your local farmer's market. And many of them are now doing online ordering. We were talking about this the other day. It's a great idea to help local uh, producers right now. And that is you could order ahead of time and say, I'm going to take that lettuce, I'm going to take this, this, and whatever's available, and then just go and pick it up on the Sunday at your local farmer's market. Uh, it'll help out. More people can then also buy product too, right? You can still do the social distancing and have the farmer's market. And at the same time, you can still sell a lot of product this way as well.